So the last few weeks we've been talking about prayer. And this week we're going to start to turn our attention toward Easter. It's Palm Sunday, uh, which kicks off Holy Week, right? The week where Jesus was in Jerusalem. The timeline to his crucifixion is speeding up. And everything's very intense in this picture or in this, in, this, in this moment of time in Jesus' life. I do want to say that even though we're changing our focus away from prayer in terms of the, the teaching, we're not done praying, okay? It's just we can't talk about everything all the time. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of like, we're done with prayer. Maybe I don't have to pray anymore. It's like, no, 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 we're done talking about prayer. Now we keep doing the prayer, right? Doing the prayer. There's not a specific prayer, like doing prayer. Just pray. But uh, so today we celebrate the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem. His whole ministry had led up to this time. His whole life had led up to this time. The disciples were waiting for this moment. Everybody expected Jesus to, to overthrow Rome at this moment. And everybody's getting really excited. Now, Jesus is the master strategist being God. And he chose... Th- the time where the most people would be in this city of Jerusalem. In my reading, I learned that there's anywhere between 80 and 100,000 people, 80,000 and 100,000 people who lived in Jerusalem year round. But at the time of the Passover festival, uh, there would be anywhere from like uh, 1.5 million to 3 plus million people in Jerusalem. Okay, so this was a groundswell of people coming from all over the region, coming to celebrate Passover uh, together. And, you know, the the 3 to 4.5 million number uh, includes people who aren't Jewish as well. So the Gentiles who lived in the region uh, are included in that number. So it's no surprise that Jesus had to stay a little bit away from a little bit away from Jerusalem. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But uh, he came to Jerusalem to do all these things, to fulfill all these things. But he's going to stay in Bethlehem, which is about, I'm sorry, in Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Because as you can imagine, anytime there's something that happens in our region, a major conference, a major, uh, you know, like the inauguration when it happens, I mean, it's going to be such a big deal and people are going to have to stay out in the suburbs. That's basically what happened uh, with Jesus. And that's why he'll be staying in Bethany, among other things. But uh, we're, we're looking at Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11 in the ESV, if you're wondering. So, And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went out into the, and, and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12, the words of God. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. This celebration of who you truly are. I ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear, and to understand who it is that you are, what it is that you desire for us in Jesus name. Amen. Today, I want to highlight three areas. I want to talk about the worship that Jesus received as he was walking, uh, as he entered Jerusalem. He entered on a cult. Uh, I'm going to, I want to talk about uh, what Jesus was seeking in the temple. What is it that he was looking for? And then I want to, I want to look at, uh, I want to look at 
uh, I, I called it slept in the notes, uh, so that might come up on screen, but it's, it's really a, a sober warning for us in this passage as well. Uh, but first, uh, Matthew, the, the account of Jesus and the triumphal entry is found in, in all four Gospels. But each, each account is a little bit different than the other ones. And so if you read in Mark chapter 11, like we are, uh, it reads one way. And then if you look in Matthew chapter 21, it looks like something different is happening, but it's actually the same thing. It's the way that they wrote their books and the purpose that they wrote their books for caused them to focus on different things. And so in this case, Mark actually gives a little bit more information, chronologically speaking, than Matthew did. And then you look at the book of John, and the book of John, it's like, it, this, is how, this is how it would go. It's like, John starts telling the story. He's like, and then Jesus got on a donkey, started riding it in, and everybody was cutting palms down, and they were putting it down on the ground. And then, and then Matthew's like, yeah, and then he picks up, and he's like, and then this happened. And John's like, no, 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 I'm not talking about that time at the end of his ministry. I'm talking about the time it happened at the beginning. Of, oh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about cleansing the temple. And uh, Jesus cleanses the temple twice. That's after this text. I got so excited about this. Um, Jesus actually cleansed the temple. We're not even talking about cleansing the temple. Can I talk about cleansing the temple? This is kind of cool. Okay, so we're going to use this for our example. So, so John's like, Jesus cleansed the temple, and it was like this, and it was crazy. And Matthew's like, and Jesus cleansed the temple, and then this happened. And John's like, no, 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 I'm talking about the other time he cleansed the temple. Right? It's like, you know, when people are telling a story, and then, and then Matthew starts telling, you know, he's like, oh, okay, John, so it happened at the beginning of his ministry too. You're right. I'm talking about the second time he cleansed the temple. And so Matthew's talking and he's going and he's like, yeah. And so it, like Jesus rode the donkey in and then he just started flipping tables and stuff. He wrecked house. It was crazy. And Mark's like, wait, Matthew, do you remember before Jesus cleansed the temple, he went and slept at Bethany and then he came back in, he cursed the fig tree and then he cleansed the temple. Right, And the only reason I highlight this is because of the, the apparent contradictions in Scripture that get everybody all gummed up. They're just apparent contradictions. And I don't know if I did a very good job of explaining what, what, what's happening, but it's kind of like if, if, we, if we go and we talk about this church service at lunch after, you know, and we're just hanging out and we're, we go to explain it to somebody else, JC's going to talk about certain details that I forget. And then Kurt's going to talk about certain details that, that JC forgot. And then I'm going to tell a different version of the story from where, from where I was standing on stage because I'm having a completely different experience than you. You with me? And so that's what's happening in the Gospels. So if you, if you feel led to read about this triumphal entry in this, in, in, you know, during your five for five this week, reading your Bible for at least five minutes for five days this week, if you want to read about this triumphal entry and Holy Week and everything that happened leading up to the crucifixion, you could read it. And all, you could read it. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to appear different in different places. And so sometimes it's just a matter of, of figuring out what's actually happening. But, uh, but they're not contradictory. They're, they're telling the same story. All right, so let's talk about what happened when Jesus started entering. Uh, I'm, I'm going to call this um, sanctioned worship. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, and the people start to celebrate and worship 
Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they gave him a king's welcome with the waving palms and putting jackets and palms and leaves down on the ground so that he would walk over it. Jesus fulfilled prophecy in Zechariah by riding on a, by riding on a colt, by riding on this, this donkey, which is not the way that a king would enter. So it's this kind of confusing moment. He's fulfilling this promise that this spirit, this, this Messiah was going to enter in a hum, by humble means. So a king by humble means getting a king's welcome. It's kind of a, it's kind of a mind blowing moment. And they're worshiping and they're saying, Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna in the highest, which means to the uttermost. So save us to the uttermost. Save us in the greatest way possible. Save us because we're desperate for your salvation. Now, this is what the, the people expected Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to overthrow death instead. But they expected him to overthrow the Roman government. And that's why they were celebrating his entry. But Jesus was pleased to receive their worship because he was king. Now, this is Jesus receiving their worship is one of the ways that Jesus acknowledged his divinity, his godness. Because unlike every other prophet who would have had this, you know, every time an angel shows up to bring a message, people got down on their knees or, or bowed down or like took a position of, of, of submission and fear. And they said, I'm not God. Don't worship me. I'm just his messenger. But Jesus is going, go ahead on and worship me. And so by him receiving the worship that he received that day, it was a statement of his godness. And that's an important thing to recognize. And it should bring us a little bit of confidence that if Jesus was willing to receive worship, uh, that that is as much a statement of him saying that he's God as just saying, I'm God, which he did in other places and other ways. So he's going through and he's receiving their worship. Save us to the uttermost. And, and like us, oftentimes, they, they had a prescribed means of the salvation that they expected. Right? When I cry out to God for salvation or for help uh, for certain things, I often have a plan in mind about how I'd like for him to do it. Right? My wife and I found ourselves in a whole lot of debt with the IRS because of, a, because of an accident. We caught it. This was how many years ago? Eight years ago? It's like, yeah, I caught it. We were doing the taxes and I, I got to click a different box because of some circumstances had changed. And I clicked the box and I was like, wait a second, I've never clicked that box before. And I put all the things together and I hadn't paid certain taxes in a long time. And I was like, dang. And I found myself in that really awkward position where you're like, I'm the only one that knows. My wife doesn't know. And if the IRS really wants it, they can come and get it. And what's the statute of limitations? You know? <laughs> so anyway, we ended up in a lot of debt. I ended up just owning up. We got an accountant, pulled it all together, and it was a lot of money. And we spent this amount of time pretty much paying it off. And so, uh, but we've, we've managed to pay it off since then. So we're, we're relieved. And, you know, would the IRS have caught it? No, probably not. But how could I stand up and ask you all to give faithfully and generously and to do so with integrity if, if I was like cheating on taxes, even on accident? I looked at Megan. I said, I wish I was dumber. 
because I could have just missed it. I could have just missed it, right? Like the same information. I could have just missed it, but I, it was a test. Why am I talking about my taxes? Oh, yeah. So when I was crying out to God for, for salvation from this tax problem I had, uh, I meant, God, give me lots of money to pay off of this tax bill. And God was like, no, you're going to eat rice and beans. A lot of rice and beans. And, and um, you're going you're gonna to get the you know, generic coffee and you're not going to go to Starbucks. And you're gonna, it's going to be tight. And that's how you're going to do this right? You're going to wear your shoes out. You're going to wear your jeans out. You're going to wear your shirts out. You're just going to wear it out. And he wore me out. But I was crying out and saying, God bless me with more money so we can get out of this mess. And he's like, how about I give you some wisdom to navigate this mess with the resources that you already have in your hand? And I said, God, I've got a better idea. (laughs) How about you just give me the money? And he's like, I gave you the money. So, but uh, we have our prescribed means and the crowd had their prescribed means. Why do I have confidence in saying this about the crowd? I'm not judging them. I'm just, I'm saying we're a lot like the crowd. The reason we know that this is the way the crowd was crying out to is, is because at the end of the week, they'd be crying out for him to be crucified. When he didn't overthrow the government, when he didn't do things the way that they wanted him to do, uh, that they wanted him to do it, when he didn't do what he expected or what they expected of him, they were like, kill him. He's no good for us. He's no king. Kill him. There was even a moment where the crowd got to choose between a horrible criminal, Barabbas, And Jesus and Pilate's like, hey, look, you guys have this tradition. This time of year, we release one criminal, a criminal who's killing people and doing awful things and a criminal who just you don't like for no reason, except for he said he's God. And they said, give us the murderer. Let Jesus die. So that's how that's how we know that the crowd's heart wasn't really in this worship because of how they responded when they didn't get what they want. Jesus entered Jerusalem in the midst of all of this worship. I say he sanctioned it because it was, uh, because he was basically saying, yeah, I'm worthy of this kind of worship. So in that way, it was sanctioned. But it's probably as true that he stomached their worship. Because he's, he's moving along and he's like, you guys are going to, you guys are going to be calling for my death. In just a few short days, you're going to want me to die because I'm not here to do your bidding. I'm here to do mine. It was a, uh, it was a case of mistaken identity where they thought they were waving at one person, but they were waving at a whole other person. You know, if that happens in in, in, in our lives, it's embarrassing to everybody, isn't it? <laughs> You're like, oh, hey. <laughs> you know, like, how can I draw this back? Or worse, when you're close and it's a handshake. You're just like, yeah, sorry. Uh, that never happens to you guys. It happens to me. Um, it was a case of mistaken identity. 
they were waving, they thought at one person, but they, they were waving at somebody entirely different. They didn't, they, they missed, they missed the moment. So he enters the Jerusalem, he makes it past this parade and goes to the temple. He didn't go to the club. He didn't go to the pub or the sports fields. He went to the place that was dedicated to him. He went to the place where that, that he loved. Do you have a place like a, like a, a city that you go to, maybe a restaurant? You knew I was going to make it about food. <laughs> you know, you got this restaurant, you're like, oh man, if I'm in Harrisonburg, I got to go to this restaurant. A&T's Chicken. If I'm in this place, I've got to go to this place. If I'm in Kansas City, I've got to go to Gates Barbecue. If I'm in a certain place, I've got to go to the places that I love, that, I have, that my heart is at, well, my mouth is at. Jesus wasn't nearly so shallow. He went to the place where his heart was. Even when Jesus was a boy, we see in, in the book of Luke, we see that Jesus went to the temple and, and his family left to go back to their, to their home. And Jesus stayed in the temple because his heart was there. He was about the father's business. He just loved being there and talking about the law and talking about the purposes of God and talking about statutes and, and talking about what does it mean to love God and to walk with him and to know him. Jesus loved this place. And I think we can all identify with, with places like that. And he looked at everything. You know, uh, just in terms of him loving that place, Second Chronicles seven sixteen says, I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And so his, his heart and his eyes are there. And so he shows up and he starts looking, it says, at everything. So what was he looking for? I believe as much as anything else, he was seeking after worshipers. The Bible says that for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He's looking for people who are surrendered to him and will follow him and will obey him and will respond to him. He went to his temple, the place where his heart was to see if he would find the people who would respond to him in a blameless way who would surrender to him, who would follow him, who would love him. I believe he was looking for humble worship. John 4, 23 and 24 says, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And he says, there's an hour coming and it's here now where true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking, is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I believe he went to his temple to find people who would worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth, that means uh, not just in the natural, but with our hearts as well. And it's a battle to worship with our heart. It's a battle to worship in the spirit and the truth means without pretense. That means that our worship isn't offered up as like I'm a, I'm I I'm presenting myself to be something that I'm not. 
You know, the prayer that says, God, I'm broken and I feel like sinning right now is a lot better than the prayer that says, you know, God, I, you know, is equally as valid as the prayer that says, God, I want to honor you and serve you. Make me strong. Right? Like sometimes my, my best prayers are the ones where I'm like, you know what? God, I'm just going to be real honest right now. I want to sin. I want to stay angry. I want to stay unforgiving. I don't want to read my Bible. Will you change my appetite? That's a lot more valuable than, you know, reciting the prayer that I prayed last week. That's a lot more valuable, that transparent, honest, truthful, crying out to God and saying, I'm broken, mend me. Than saying, hey, I'm all together and I've got it. Can you just add a little something, something to my great life? <laughs> like to shout a little bit. Maybe some money. I believe he was looking for love. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He was looking for prayer. When he goes back the next day, he overturns the, the tables and he, and, and he wrecks house. And what he says is, this should be a house of prayer for the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer. What is it? Let me read it. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've turned it into something entirely different. He's looking for people who aren't just concerned with their own needs, but recognize that God will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. So with confidence, we can start to ask for others. You with me? That'd be a neat exercise for this week. What if you didn't pray for yourself at all? And every time you wanted to pray for yourself or got angry in rush hour traffic, you prayed for somebody else. What if every time you got frustrated because you didn't have enough money? What if when you were paying the bills, you prayed for the nations? And you cried out to God to provide for widows and orphans. And then all of a sudden, your numbers start looking a lot bigger. And then all of a sudden, gratitude starts rising up in a completely new and fresh way. You know what Jesus doesn't want from us is lip service. He doesn't want for us to think that we can make it on our own. He doesn't want us to think that we're basically good and he's pretty much like a lot like us. He just lives in heaven. What he wants from us is faith. An absolute trust and commitment. The absolute belief that he can and will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Faith that he'll be moved by our prayer. Faith that when we worship, he'll draw close. Now, worship isn't just an expression of singing and song. Thank God, right? But also service. Also sacrifice. Also giving. And love. The kind of faith that's so filled up with the love of God and, and the understanding that, man, God has forgiven so much of my offense against him, all of my offense against him, which is so much. I find it to be 
a pleasure and an easy thing to forgive and to love those who are in my life. So then we see this, this, uh, that Jesus slept. He went back to Bethany. It was late in the day. He looked around and, and it was late in the day. So he went to Bethany, like I said earlier, because, because so many people were in Jerusalem, it only makes sense that he had to stay in, in the burbs. And so, so he took off to Bethany and he's sleeping there and it would be easy to assume that he was pleased with everything that had happened that day. People worshiped him. He went to church and went home. Great day. <laughs> that is a good day when everybody worships you. But the next day, he shows up and turns the tables over. The sober warning that I find here that, that Jesus slept is that just because he didn't render judgment at the time that he saw it doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean that it's acceptable to him or that he's pleased with it. He was a master timekeeper. That's how he managed to land in Jerusalem at at the right time. That's why when he got to the the border of Jerusalem, he was able to say, hey, there's going to be a donkey tied up outside. Go and tell him that the Lord has need of it. Because he was the ma- he 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 was he he had full control over over time, and so God, having full understanding of time and timeliness, shows up in this moment, and He's like, "Now's not the time to flip these tables. I'm going to go sleep on it." I don't know if he slept on it like we sleep on it. We sleep on it like stewing and angry and whatever else. Jesus is like, "Tomorrow's the time." He's more, he, he more understands that there's an appointed time for all things. And so he went back to Bethany, slept and came back the next day. And, you know, on his way back in, he cursed the fig tree. Because it had all the signs of fruit, but none of the fruit. Just like the people who were worshiping just the day before. And he walks in and he turns the tables over because he wants to clear out everything that hinders people from worshiping him in spirit and in truth. He wants to destroy everything that hinders us from being able to offer up a prayer of faith. He wants to destroy everything that stands in the way of us being able to receive his love and to love one another. He wants to destroy everything that would uh, prevent us from, from having a blameless heart before God because of the sacrifice that he was going to offer on our behalf. But the table or the temple that God is inspecting today isn't a building. It's you and me. And so I, I was trying to find a way to like make this really encouraging. Um, let me say this first. We are the temple that he's inspecting today. And he wants our worship. He wants your worship. He wants your life surrendered to him and he wants you to clean house and get rid of everything in your life that stands in the way of worship that is true. And that is such a heavy thing. And I want to make sure that we don't walk away condemned 
in this position of like, God's trying to ruin my life. No, he's trying to give you the best life. God's trying to take the things from me that I like. Well, because the things that you like are going to kill you. They're keeping you from the life that he intends for you to have. And this is how this is encouraging. It's because love is, is his motivator. JC said it this morning that love motivated, love motivated God to give himself for us. Love provoked him to turn the tables over and he will turn the tables over in your life so that you won't be hindered in your worship of him. We've got, we've got an option. We can kind of get rid of the tables on our own or we could wait for him to do it. But we need to make sure that we don't just think that everything's okay because we haven't felt judgment. Because you've been sinning a certain way and God hasn't stopped you or judged you or destroyed your life yet, so he must not think it's a problem. I can send those texts. I can view those websites. I can take this money. I can, I can hide this thing. I can, have, I can keep going to the bottle. I can keep going to the prescriptions. I can keep going to these other things. And we feel like it's okay because he, he hasn't judged us. I can stay angry. I can stay abusive. I can stay this way. I can stay, uh, uh, gosh, I, vengeful. And God hasn't stopped me yet, so it must be okay. No, no, that's not, that's not the Jesus that I know in the Bible. My, my, my hope is that we could respond to his, to, to his love and to his warning and to his calling, his beckoning, and, and walk away from these things together. You know, like, like as a family, as a church. Because it's, it's not just you alone. It's, it's all of us together turning and walking away and enjoying the, the momentum that comes from doing this with other people. Nobody else can do it for you, but we can do it with you. I have to stop. Father, in the name of